This morning, we have a curious section that centers upon Ahab's covetousness. It is curious as we consider the outcome of the narrative at the very end of the chapter. But we first want to begin by looking at the details of the narrative itself, and then after we look at the details, we will make some applications, some takeaways, if you will. So let's begin by looking at the details of the narrative. First Kings 21, starting at verse 1. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. The first thing we note is Ahab's desire to acquire Naboth's vineyard, verse 2. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house. Now at first glance, the desire of Ahab seems pretty innocuous. It seems reasonable, normative. He sees a property near his own, finds it desirable, and wants to purchase it. So far, so good, one would think. Next, Ahab makes a rather generous offer to Naboth, verse 2. Picking up in the middle of verse 2, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house. Now here's the offer. And I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Again, this seems very reasonable on the part of Ahab. It would appear that he's willing to pay a fair price for the land and wants to negotiate. However, Nabo's refusal to sell the property is based on religious grounds. Verse 3. But, Nabo said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now this would appear to be based on Numbers 36, verse 7, which reads, The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of their fathers. Also Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. In the Old Testament, the land was seen to be a gift of God. It was a part of the inheritance that was to be passed on in that family from generation to generation. So for Naboth, it wasn't a matter of money. It didn't matter how much money that Ahab would give him. It was a matter of principle. It was a matter of perpetual ownership. It was a matter of obedience to God. Nabo's response was a principled one, and I would note the contrast. If you look at verse 25 of chapter 21, where there's an assessment of Ahab's character, it says of Ahab in verse 25, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, key word being sold. No one who sold himself. No one who was so interested in material wealth and blessing that would go to such ends to do evil. Here, Naboth is in direct contrast. He doesn't sell himself. He won't even sell his land in order 
to disobey God. It didn't matter what the price would be. He was a principled individual that was going to follow the Lord. So we see a direct contrast there. Ahab's response to Naboth's refusal to sell the land is that Ahab is discontented, displeased, and angered. If you look at verse 4, and Ahab went into his house, these words, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab pouted like a spoiled child or a spoiled king. End of verse 4. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Hoo-hoo. All right? His life is miserable because he can't have this property that he wants. And he responds in a very childish way. Jezebel enters the picture. She wants to know what is bothering Ahab, verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? What's the matter with you? So Ahab recounts the incident, verse 6. He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money or else. If it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Of course, Ahab leaves out the reason why Naboth will not sell the property to Ahab. And I believe that's for Ahab. That's not an acceptable reason. In fact, it's not even worth mentioning. In Ahab's mind, that's a trumped-up reason. Uh, he's not even going to consider it. So we have Jezebel's response. Ahab is king and thus entitled to do whatever he wants to do. Notice verse 7. Jezebel said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Aren't you the king? Aren't you in control? Wake up! Smell the roses! You can do whatever you want, she says to him. Well, in a measure that's true, and obviously it's not true, in the sense that he has great power, but his authority is limited. <laughs> his authority is limited to act in accordance with the word and will of God. He can't just do anything he wants to do. He's supposed to be reigning under the authority of God. But she says, snap out of it. Verse 7, middle of the verse, arise and eat bread. Let your heart be cheerful. She will give the land, she will get the land for him. End of verse 7. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So Ahab is happy, and he is willing to go along with it. He's waiting for the land to become his. So now we look at Jezebel's scheme to take the land, verses 8 through 10. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him 
and let them bring a charge against him. You have cursed God and the king, and take him out and stone him to death. It is sad, of course, because of the injustices that are going to take place. But it is not only the loss of land that should sadden us, but also the reputation of Naboth. Uh, here is a person who is standing firm in his allegiance to God, in his unwillingness to uh, sell the land, and it's his allegiance to God that is going to be smeared and questioned. He's going to be accused of cursing God. So there's tremendous irony throughout this section. Jezebel's plan is carried out. Everyone cooperated with the plan. Verse 11. And the men of the city, the rulers and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. The plan was followed exactly, verses 12 through 13. They proclaimed a fast, set Naboth at the head of the people, and two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Naboth was killed. Oh, this is the end of verse 13. They took him out of the city and stoned him with stones. Now I want to pause and just note that we see how wickedness and injustice spread in the nation of Israel. There was no one willing to defend Naboth or stand upon principle. In this passage, God accuses Ahab of making Israel to sin. This is just one example among many. But if you look at verse 22, it says, and this is the judgment that is announced against Ahab, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, or the anger to which you have provoked me. And now here's the cause of the anger. Because you have made Israel to sin. You have made Israel to sin. So here we learn how corruption of a leader spreads throughout the nation. It's important to keep in mind that corrupt leaders can only do what they do when ordinary people will allow them to do it. Notice this simple statement that is found in uh, verse 11. It says, And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. They knew this was evil. They knew this was wrong. They knew this was trumped up. In fact, they were assigned the responsibility of go out and find two liars that will come in and will not speak the truth, bring a false accusation, and go out and kill this guy and stone him. Now, these are the leaders. These are the local regents that are responsible for administering justice. But they go along with it. 
They go along with it. And it's easy to understand why. <laughs> Their life would be on the line if they were disobedient. It's easy to see the fallout that come if they were going to stand on principle and do what is right. But the reality is they didn't stand on principle and they didn't do what was right and they gave in to the corruption of the king and his wife. And ultimately, God traces that back to Ahab and his influence upon the nation. How this ungodliness spread. And so we always need to be concerned that we have righteous leaders for else corruption spreads, especially when local authorities do not follow uh, the truth of God. We see that this is not a unique situation at all. We are to understand that this is just representative, unfortunately, of how evil is at work among us. We see in the New Testament how the Pharisees had a very similar plot regarding Jesus. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 59, it reads, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. So Jesus is on trial. And the Pharisees are looking for some liars that are going to say things about Jesus that aren't true. It says, but they found none, though they, many false witnesses came forward at least two came forward and said, the man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. They, they found these false witnesses, but were getting nowhere. But don't forget, don't forget the role of the crowd in all of this. It's easy to focus upon the trial itself. Remember later in Matthew chapter 27 reads as follows. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release from the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Here is this opportunity. Here, Jesus can be set free. Here, justice can reign. Pilate uh, says, who do you want? Shall I release Barabbas or shall I release Jesus? It says he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent of all the accusations. And then we have this aside, but a very important aside. Verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas 
and destroyed Jesus. This just didn't happen. This was not a spontaneous act. This was the conniving manipulation of the scribes and Pharisees who had enough foresight, enough wisdom, enough understanding of Roman government to know how this all was going to go down. They knew that after Jesus would be found guilty on the basis of false witness, they knew that there would be a turning point, and that was when Jesus would be presented publicly and given the opportunity to be released. But the scribes and Pharisees, working behind the scenes, had stirred up the crowd to say, not Jesus, Barabbas, Barabbas. For that's how evil works. That's how corruption spreads. When people in authority manipulate those under them to engage in sinful activity. So it goes on to say, the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what do you want me to do with Jesus, who is called Christ? If you're going to let Barabbas go, what do you want me to do with Jesus? Then they all said, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Exactly what the Pharisees wanted to take place. Exactly what they had stirred them up to do. The point is very, very much in keeping with what we see with Naboth and his vineyard. With the activity of Ahab and the local elders and magistrates. Jezebel is informed that Naboth is dead, verse 14. Then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. So Ahab rises up and takes control of the vineyard, verse 15. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. We might ask the question in this narrative, why doesn't the vineyard pass on to his descendants. Why when Naboth's vineyard, why when Naboth dies, doesn't the possession go to Naboth's sons instead of Ahab? Well, actually, the word of God answers that question, just not here. But in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 26, we read, and as surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord God. So, not only was Naboth killed, but his sons were killed also. Now that 
fact doesn't arise till later, but it's a reality, and th that is just left out in our particular narrative. But it's also interesting because if the sons are going to be killed, then the whole trumped-up charge thing goes out the window. All that mattered at this point was that Naboth was dead, a fact that is mentioned in various ways five times in verses 13 to 16. Naboth is dead. Now we have God's response. God sends Elijah to confront Ahab in Naboth's vineyard, verse 17 and 18. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. God knows where Ahab is. God knows what Ahab has done. And now God is going to do something about it. Elijah is to pronounce judgment upon Ahab, verse 19. You shall say to him, thus says the Lord, you have killed also taken possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Elijah pronounces judgment upon Ahab in the very vineyard of Naboth. Verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you. I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Here we see the omniscience of God. Here also we begin to see God's justice. As you read the passage, one may wonder, why did God not intervene before Nabo's death as opposed to after his death? Not only is he aware of what happened, he was aware of what was happening. Not only was he aware of what was happening, he was aware before it ever was planned. And you can get into these questions of, of why, of which the scriptures so often don't tell us. Don't tell us. But it's important to understand the power of God. Not limited. Not to see these things are beyond his control. But also ascribe to him wisdom and justice. Nabo's death will not go unrequited. Nor will the injustices of others. But again, I want us to see that the passage before us is merely representative of the very same truths that we find throughout the Word of God. I, I take you to the book of Revelation. You don't need to turn there, but listen. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, it says, And when he, that is Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. Here were people that were killed because they had been faithful to God in his word. And these dead individuals 
said, as their spirits lived on, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. We know you're powerful. We know you're holy. We know you are true. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We know you got this. We know you are in control. We know you're holy. We know you are true. So how long, God, are you going to put up with this? How long, God, before we see the justice that is due? And God's response is, and they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had. What a response. How long? Well, you got to wait a little longer because there's going to be others that die. You got to wait a little longer. You're not alone. There will still be others that die. But God is holy. God is true. Judgment is coming. But not yet. But not yet. It's so important that we realize that God's judgment will come. And we especially need to keep that in mind when we see injustice all around us. When we see evil that seems to conquer. When we see evil plans brought to fruition. It's easy to throw up one's hands and ask the question, where is God, where is justice, where is holiness? If God is God, why is there suffering? If God is God, why is there death? If God is God, then why do we see evil succeed? It won't always. It won't always. It won't always. But hold on, for we're going to see something else about God in this passage. Ahab's judgment. God's judgment will come upon Ahab and Ahab's descendants. Verse 21. Behold, I'll bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bound or free in Israel. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, like the house of Baasha, the son of Abijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel the same. There will be God's judgment against Jezebel, verse 23. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Verse 24, anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. They won't get a burial of honor. They are going to be disgraced in their death. Now we're given an aside, a comment, an understanding of just how evil Ahab really is. So how evil is he? Answer, there was no one who was as covetous as Ahab was, verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil. 
Again, this is a, an aside. It's, it's, it's in the narrative. It's for our understanding. This is not what the prophet says to Elijah. This is for our benefit. There was none one who sold himself to do evil like Ahab. He was willing to go to any lengths necessary to get what he wanted. No evil was too great. The death of Naboth and his sons was not a bridge too far. And Jezebel was no help to Ahab. In fact, she egged him on. You want Naboth's vineyard? You're the king. You can have it. I'll get it for you. He had forsaken the God of Israel and acted like those whom God had judged in the past. Verse 20, he acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done. The very people that God had judged, end of verse 20, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. He should have known better. He should have realized their end. He was acting like those that had already been destroyed. Certainly, it would mean that he would be destroyed. He had not cared about what God said. The answer of Naboth to Ahab had no impact whatsoever. The idea that God had forbid this land to go into the possession of Ahab. He thought he could defy God without any impunity. Now we have Ahab's surprising remorse. Ahab's Joy is turned into sorrow, verse 27. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his face, and fasted and lay in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. The sin that he thought was going to bring him great joy now brought him great heartache and misery. It didn't turn out the way that he had anticipated. The scripture says there's pleasure in sin for a season. But how often it is that the pleasure is short-lived and the misery follows. God brings Ahab's attention to, uh, to uh, excuse me, God brings Ahab's behavior to Elijah's attention. Elijah, don't miss this, verse 28. And the word came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Who would have expected that outcome? It's quite shocking. It's rather surprising. I'll say more about that in just a few moments. But we need to understand some things to begin with. And that is, in God's mercy, the judgment of Ahab's sons is postponed. If you look at verse 29. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. As Dale Ralph Davis points out in his commentary, one must realize the difference between being postponed and canceled. A football game that is postponed is a football game that will be played later. A football game that is canceled 
is a football game that will never be played. Again, a football game that is postponed will be played later. Here, God's judgment is not canceled. It is postponed. It's not that God's judgment will not take place, but God's judgment will be delayed. God is merciful in that Ahab does not see these things happen in his lifetime. He doesn't see the death of his own sons with his own eyes. It's a very hard thing to experience the death of one's own children. We don't expect to outlive our children, and it's a particular heartache, I believe, when you have to see the death of your own children. There is a Jewish king that will come later whose name is Zedekiah. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon punished Zedekiah. And this is the account. 2 Kings chapter 25, starting at verse 5, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. So first, they brought out the king and they brought out his sons and as he watched they slew his sons and then they put out his eyes then they blinded him the last thing that Zedekiah saw was the death of his sons it was intended to be just a hideous punishment it, it was intended to drive home the point the last memory. The last visible thing this king saw was the death of his sons. God in his mercy said, Ahab, you're not going to see the death of your sons. It's coming. It's coming. But I won't do it in your lifetime because I'm merciful. Because I'm kind. Because I see that you have humbled yourself before me. Now we've got to wrestle with a difficult question. Does that mean that Ahab was saved? Maybe, maybe not. Commentators certainly disagree over that question. What we do know is that God is long-suffering. We do know that God is merciful. Only God knows if the repentance of Ahab was genuine or not. But for sake of application, I tend to think that this was not a situation in which he was truly saved, if you will. I think that we can understand this more in the area of remorse and regret than we can in true repentance. In fact, the word repentance doesn't occur in the text. Humility is what is mentioned. He's grieved at the thought of all that will come upon his family. What is unique is that 
He believes this is going to happen. He, he believes that this judgment is going to occur, and it brings him great horror, uh, sorrow. It brings him great heartache. Understandably so. But in reality, the, the difference between his reaction to the fact that he didn't get the land and this is not all that different. He won't eat before. He doesn't eat now. He's miserable before. He's, he's miserable now. I believe that his sorrow is not over what he has done, but over the consequences. It's over the fact that his family is going to be destroyed. I don't think he's grieved by his sinfulness. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 makes a distinction between remorse and true repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there's this worldly grief. A worldly grief that doesn't actually bring about salvation. A worldly grief that only looks at the misery, only looks at the heartache, but doesn't deal with the real heart issue. And 2 Corinthians goes on to say this in verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now verse 11, for we see in true repentance, we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So this godly repentance brings about a meaningful change, of which we're going to see in the next chapter doesn't appear to have taken place. He is miserable that his family is going to die and he is going to die and such awful deaths that they do die. Remember, another key is understanding that none of the punishment is canceled. Everything that's pronounced against him and his family takes place. It's not canceled. It's postponed. It's postponed. When our sins are forgiven, the punishment is canceled. We deserve hell. But because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore our sins, we don't experience hell. We experience eternal life. The debt is paid. The sin requirement is canceled. So what are the big takeaways in this passage? There are a number. First, God's people's experiences injustices. Certainly, Jesus experienced a host of injustices, and so will we, and so will we. Injustice abounds in the scripture. 
Because God's people suffer injustices does not mean that God is unaware, that God is not concerned, nor that God is weak, nor that God will not punish forever. What we find in this passage is that God is merciful. God is merciful not only to the righteous, but to the unrighteous. It is by the mercy of God, the scripture says, that we're not consumed. God is merciful to people that we would not extend mercy to. God even has mercy for this wicked Ahab. Not to the point that he's going to escape final judgment, but he's long-suffering. He forbears. And the scripture says that the goodness and mercy of God leads us to repentance. God's mercy should be the very aspect of God that leads us to repent and to bring our lives under his authority. Not out of fear, but out of appreciation for who God is and how delightful it is to be under his authority. You know, Romans chapter 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, based on the mercy of God, his goodness to us, the way in which he so long is patient and kind with us, and as believers, his mercy will never fail. It's everlasting. It never will come to an end. It does with Ahab. Because I don't believe he ultimately and truly repented. Take the warnings of judgment seriously. James tells us that the demons believe and tremble. They are aware of judgment. They know what's going to happen and yet do not submit to the authority of God. If you know that this morning you stand in need of forgiveness and you stand in need of a Savior, then cry out to God who is gracious and he will save you. Just don't fear, but respond. Don't take the one who preaches righteousness and holiness as an enemy. 1 Kings 21, 20, Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? But now, let me add this. A lesson for Elijah and a lesson for all of us as we think about Ahab being humbled. God calls Elijah to take notice of what is happening. Look at verse 29. God speaking to Elijah. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? 
He's saying to Elijah, don't miss this. Don't miss this. And I say to you this morning, let us not miss this. This is so important. Why is it so important to understand that Ahab was humbled before God? For the lesson is that there is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every creature, angelic or human, is going to bow before God and be humbled. Philippians 2.11. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That does not mean that every creature is saved. That doesn't mean that hell will be empty. That doesn't mean that everyone will stand justified before God. It is saying there comes a point in time that no matter how powerful, no matter how it seems that a person can get away with murder, a day is coming when every knee is going to bow before God. Justice will prevail. Everything that is said of Ahab and his family will come to pass. We'll see it in the weeks that follow. Postponed, not canceled. God is merciful. But there is a day of judgment. There is a day of reckoning. For God is not only sovereign, holy, and true. But God is faithful. He will do what he says he will do. Let us pray. Oh God, we are thankful that you are a God of mercy. We are thankful that you even have compassion on the most wicked. Lord, help us to be a people who show mercy to others. Help us to be a people who delight actually in your mercy and help us as we see injustices all around us and wonder why not lose sight of part of this is God's mercy. Part of this is his long-suffering character. But there is a time, there, there is a point in which God says enough is enough. And Lord, you are going to bring about all that you have declared Everything that you say is going to come to pass. Your judgment is real. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have spared the lives of each and every person that is here this morning. If there's one here who doesn't know you, may they understand that mercy comes to an end that though we may think we are getting away with our rebellion against you, it, we aren't. There will be a day of reckoning. Lord, help us to see as your people that you are sovereign, you are holy, 
you are good, even in the midst of injustices. May we not question your control or your character. In all that we see going on in life, may we understand how corruption works. May we understand evil. Lord, may we be willing to stand against it no matter what the consequences. May we actually model a Naboth who's not afraid to say to the king, I will not sell my land to you for it's forbidden. And he bore the consequences. And then we see the magistrates, the leaders, the elders who are responsible for justice who are not willing to bear the consequences of going against an evil king and an evil queen. Give us strength. Give us courage. And Lord, give us confidence that in the end justice prevails. For the day of reckoning is coming. Lord, you will make all things right. And we thank you that there will be complete joy. And we will be in your presence forever and ever. And all the heartache and all the misery that we would ever experience in this life is going to be taken away. And there will be complete and utter joy. And we will delight in you. And we'll be thankful for all that you have done. And we will know everlasting bliss. We thank you for that truth. Help us to ever keep it before us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.